begin in verse 36 and work our way through um, the end of uh, verse 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Let me um, pray for us before we look at it together, okay? Father, I pray that in these... Next few moments as we turn our focus on this passage, as wonderful and, and as encouraging and as scary as it is, I pray that you would help us and that you would teach us, help us to make sense of what it means, because you know that we, we can't apart from your help. So come and, and teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I heard the story from somebody else, so this is like second or third hand, but, but several years ago, um, there was this family in this small West Texas town. And, uh, you know, like, like the dad of the family is like the quintessential patriarch, successful businessman, leader in the community, leader in his church. And he had all these children. And his oldest daughter, you know, grew up in this loving family, grew up in the church, and went off to college and just kind of went off the deep end and um, got pregnant by some uh, guy. And so she decided to keep the baby, uh, but she dropped out of school and, and moved back home. But, you know, when you get pregnant, it's like you can only keep that a secret for so long because your body changes, you know, and people begin to find out about it. And so this whole town, this whole kind of this small town began to see this. And um, what happened was that she eventually had the baby and uh, she eventually kind of came back around uh, kind of regained her faith in Jesus, got back connected in the church, met this great Christian guy who fell in love with, with her, her child, and they ended up getting engaged. And so they're planning their wedding together. But everybody in the town begins murmuring and wondering, okay, what kind of wedding is this, is this girl going to get? Because when you're in the South, as you Southerners know, there are certain rights that you forfeit to your wedding when you've sort of exhibited a very flagrant public display of impurity. And so, for example, you know, people were wondering, 
you know, she, she, she can't get a white dress because that's reserved for girls who, who have kept themselves pure. So maybe they just thought maybe she'll get a, a you know, maybe a, a sundress or something that's off-white or maybe pastel or something. Um, you know, that was sort of the question is, is what kind of wedding is this going to look like? And um, maybe thought people, they, they should have a, a small family ceremony and maybe just a, a dinner afterward because that's what she deserves for what she's done. And so that's the question. I mean, you see, what, you see what they were thinking. You see the question that they were asking is, when somebody who is a, a flagrantly public, impure sinner, what do they deserve? The reason I bring that up is because this passage tonight raises that exact same question. This semester, we are looking at the way that Jesus interacted with real human beings, and we're asking ourselves the question, how is Jesus relevant to our lives and we've gone about asking that question, looking at the way that he interacts with, with real people. And in this story, which we're going to spend two weeks on, uh, we're just going to focus tonight on the woman of the story. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed it, but uh, it says in verse 37 that she had lived a sinful life in that town. That's nice Bible language for saying that she's a prostitute. Uh, she's a... Um, uh, a hooker, and she, she gets paid uh, to have sex with men. I mean, her life is about as, as messed up publicly as you can imagine. And so the question that this text raises is the same exact question that those people are asking in that West Texas town, is what does a publicly impure sinner deserve? So that's what we're going to try to answer tonight. Uh, here, here's the context for the story. There's this wealthy, respected religious dude who's throwing this dinner party. And this hooker busts into the, the, the party uninvited because she wants to be with Jesus. Now, the background of the story is that she's, she's heard Jesus' teaching. She, she's connected with him. She's been convicted of her lifestyle. And so she's, she's believed the gospel. She believes the forgiveness that he has offered. So she busts into this party already believing and trusting Jesus. She comes into this scene as a, as a believing Christian. And so, uh, n- knowing that he's going to... Um, uh, continue to receive her warmly. And that's sort of how the story begins. And here's what I want you to see tonight. Jesus changes the way that she sees her sin after she has had an experience with him. That's the point that I want you to see. After an experience with Jesus, he changes the way that she sees her sin. Now, because we live in Bible land and um, that word sin is murky, and I'm sure for for many of you has a lot of um, abusive connotations. I just want to define what I, what I mean by that word so that we, you know, the, the uh, playing field is cleared. Because my guess is when you hear the word sin, you think of breaking certain rules like um, drinking, cussing, committing adultery, killing people, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and, my, and, and sin is certainly that, but it's certainly so much more than that. It's not just bad behavioral decisions. It's actually referencing a moral condition, Here's what I mean by that. Imagine a machine that produces garden gnomes, okay? It's just churning out garden gnomes on a conveyor belt, and it's just churning them out one by one. Now, if the machine is busted and malfunctioned, let's say it's just, you know, it's now starting to spit out really, like, disfigured garden gnomes, like some without heads or, like, six arms, and, like, and and this is sort of the idea, is that your behavior always flows from an inner working, an inner machinery. Your, be- your decisions always flow from your heart. And so if your heart, the machinery of your heart is busted and is malfunctioned and is, and is, and is messed up, it's going to result in messed up decisions and disfigured garden gnomes, to use my you know, illustration here. 
And, and that's, what, that's what Jesus is referencing. Not, not just behavioral decisions, but the inner messed up machinery of your heart. And so what I want to do is we look at after she has this experience with Jesus, he changes the way that she sees her sin. And he changes the way that she sees it in three ways. And what I want to do is just look at these one at a time, okay? Here's the first way that he changes the way that she sees her sin, is that now she sees it as ugly. That's the first thing. She sees it as ugly. And there's two clues in this passage that show you that that's how she feels about her sin now. Here's the first. She pours out her perfume. If you look in verse 37 and 38, she intentionally brings this jar of perfume into the party because she knows she is going to pour it on Jesus's feet. Now, what's the deal with that? That's bizarre. Why tote around a thing of perfume knowing that you're going to pour it on somebody's feet? Well, Perfume was very expensive and valuable in this culture, but specifically to prostitutes, it was a tool of the trade. Because if you think about it, um, women were covered from head to toe uh, with with long robes and garbs, not too different from how you kind of visualize uh, and see women dressed in the Middle East today. And so it wasn't like all that clear to a man who was available for business. It's not like you turned a corner and there the girls were like the Daisy Dukes and the halter tops and you just know that's where I got to go. It's like your only options as you see women are a long brown robe, long brown robe, long brown robe. That's, those are, how do you know? You only know by the smell. Prostitutes, you can look this up on Google, you know, type in old, actually don't type in prostitutes, but uh, <laughs> scratch that from the record. But they carried around, they carried around these little perfume vials ar- around their neck because that's how guys would know who was available for business. Don't look that up on the internet. But I want you to see what she's doing. She comes into this party knowing that Jesus is going to be there and she brings this, this perfume and she most likely would have cracked it or smashed it and just dumped the whole thing on his feet. And you see what she's doing? She is pouring out her old identity. She is renouncing her old way of life. I mean, she's essentially quitting her job right here, right? I mean, this is, what she, uh, this is what she is doing. By emptying this jar, she is symbolically walking away from that old lifestyle. And the question is, why in the world did she do that? There's only one reason. But think about it with me for a second. For me, whenever I'm watching TV and, you know, flipping through the channels, and, you know, it never comes on a, a show that's showing somebody doing surgery, you know, like with their chest cavity open. There's like blood everywhere. And, you know, like the surgeons with the scrubs and the bright lights and the masks and the, and the gloves with like blood all over their hands. Whenever I see that, I not only have to turn the channel, I have to turn my head because I'm one of these guys that gets particularly queasy. And in fact, even talking about it right now, I feel somewhat lightheaded. So, um, I mean, I just, I, the, the reason is because that kind of stuff is just so revolting to me. I, I'm just, I get really oobed out around it. So um, I not only have to turn the channel, but I have to turn my head. It's, it's gross to me. And that's the exact same reason why this woman is turning her head, turning her life from the old way that it once was, is because it is revolting to her now. It's ugly to her. That's the first clue that you see, that now she sees her sin as ugly. She pours out the perfume. Here's the second clue. She is weeping. She's crying. 
I mean, did you see that in verse 38? She, she is crying so much that she is wetting uh, his feet with her tears. I mean, her sin has brought her to the point where she is literally shedding tears over it. She hates it. She's sick of it. So you put those two clues together and you see that the way that she sees her sin is that it is um, ugly. And do you know why she sees that her sin is ugly? Because sin is ugly. And she is in touch with reality. You know, I often think that the way that we think our relationship with God works is that he just dumps on us a, 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 a very large set of busy work to keep us busy, to keep us out of trouble, to keep us miserable. And so, therefore, sin is breaking these stupid arbitrary rules. And when you think about it like that, sin is therefore very attractive. It's actually fun. I mean, this is sort of the idea behind that Billy Joel line. You know the song? Um, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young, right? (laughs) But I want you to see, I want you to see, that's delusional. That is delusional. To see sin, sin is not just breaking some stupid arbitrary rule. Sin is actually breaking yourself. It is self-destructive always. It is always alienating. It is always corrosive. It is always a fiction, promising you a lot and and delivering on none of it. Sin is always ugly and, and, and messed up. And the question is, is do you see your sin this way? Not the way that you see other people's sin, because that's easy. But what about yourself? Do you see your sin this way? Or are you comfortable with it? Are you at peace with it? You know, when when you get around uh, certain groups of people and you just kind of engage in uh, a a big gossip session where you're just kind of raking somebody over the coals when they're not there, do you enjoy that? Do you get a kick out of that? Are are you comfortable, like, name-dropping and bragging in front of people to feel good about yourself or um, clicking on certain websites or just unloading all of your anger on another human being? Are you at peace and are you comfortable in those moments? Or does it make you feel sick? Do do you see that as ugly, as self-destructive? As sin is not just something that is dehumanizing you, but as something that's ruining all of your relationships. My favorite song on Sufjan Stevens' new album is I Want to Be Well. And I think that it's because the title, it just says it all. I want to be well. And and the chorus, or sort of the end of the song, if you're familiar with the song, all of his background singers are just chanting. It's kind of building and escalating. I want to be well. I want to be well. Over and over and over. They're chanting, basically saying, I'm sick and I want to be well. And over the top of it, in this most heartfelt, anguished cry, Sufjan sings over it, I'm not effing around. Only he doesn't edit it. And he is a Christian. And I think he gets it dead right. Because he uses the most strongest language possible to communicate something is messed up in here. And it is ugly. And I want to be well. And I'm serious. It's not a joke. I'm not effing around. He sees his sin as ugly. This woman sees her sin as ugly. And the question is, do you? And that's the first thing that I want you to see is after an experience with Jesus, she sees her sin for what it is, that it's ugly. But here's the second way that she now begins to see her sin, that it's enormous. This is the second thing, that she now sees it as enormous. Because here's what happens. After this hooker kind of crashes this party, 
the Pharisee, Simon, the religious guy, thinks to himself, if this guy were a prophet like everybody thinks he is, he would know that he is being touched by like a total skank. That's my translation. That's not, I mean, but I think that's probably something like what he would have said in his, in his head. And Jesus responds to the dude's thoughts. It's amazing. He, he, he responds to his thoughts. And here's what he does is he kind of, he tells him this story, this mini parable, and I'll just kind of summarize it. He goes, look, there's three guys. Two guys owe this other guy money. One guy owes him this enormous amount, like millions of dollars. The other guy owes him like five bucks and a blow pop. But here's the deal. Neither one of them have any money to pay him back. And they deserve to be essentially thrown into jail, debtor's prison, because they can't pay him back. They're essentially screwed in this situation. And so Jesus says, let's say that the the moneylender is very gracious and just cancels the debts of both and says, I'm not going to throw you in prison where you deserve. I'm just going to graciously cancel the debt and say, you don't owe me any money. And then he goes, okay, now which of these two people is going to love the money lender more. And Simon goes, well, I guess it's the guy with the, the bigger debt. And Jesus is like, yeah, exactly. But you see what he's doing. And we're, we're going to get into sort of the details of this story here in a second. But what he is doing is he's telling a story about them. He's talking about Simon the Pharisee and the woman. He's saying, y'all are these two people in the story. She is the one that knows that she owes me a million dollar debt in this huge hole that she can't get out of. You're the one that, that you think you owe me five bucks and a blow pop. That's the, that's the difference. But, he, but here's, here's the disclaimer here. He's not talking about the amount of their sin, meaning she's like this huge, enormous sinner. She's sinned this much, and he's only sinned this much. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about the, amount, the difference in the amount of their sin. He's talking about the difference in their awareness of their sin. That's the key. She knows that she is the one with this enormous debt, she knows that she has totally blown it. She knows that her sin, to use sort of the, the idea of, of the uh, story, is that it, it is enormous. It's astronomical. She can't pay it off, and she has no goodness in her whatsoever to pay it back with. She doesn't see her sin as just sort of like a temporary screw-up, and every now and then she sort of makes mistakes, and she doesn't see her sin as like this minor little flesh wound. She sees her sin as this pervasive cancer radiating throughout her entire being. So put those first two points together. Qualitatively, she sees her sin as ugly. Quantitatively, she sees her sin as enormous. And here's the thing. Jesus will make no sense to you whatsoever. And Christianity will actually make you downright angry unless you see your sin in the same way. Jesus won't make any sense to you whatsoever. In fact, it, it will frustrate you and, and he will make you uh, angry. Because if you, if you look at yourself and say, well, okay, this is very extreme for this woman to look at herself like this. Maybe she's just being way too hard on herself or, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, I, I'm a decent person. I mean, to say my sin is ugly and enormous, that seems a little over the top, right? But here's the thing. It, 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 if that's how you see yourself, the cross of Jesus it really won't make any sense to you whatsoever. Because what, what is the cross of Jesus? It is him dying for you. It's the idea of substitution. That's why I emphasize the word for. Meaning, what's going on? Jesus is on the cross absorbing and taking the judgment of God. So what's going on is, is, is when you say, 
I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. What you are saying is that should be me on the cross. I should be the one absorbing God's judgment. That's what you're saying. If you do identify yourselves as Christians and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. Do you know that that's what you are really saying? You are saying, I have no goodness in me. My sin is that ugly and that enormous to where I really do deserve God's judgment and displeasure and wrath. And the only reason, the only reason why I'm not receiving it is because Jesus did it in my place. For some bizarre reason, because he loves me. Not because I did anything to provoke him to do that. That's what you're saying when you say that I'm a Christian. Is you, is you are literally saying, I deserve to be in hell. Did you know that? And are you living consistently with that? Because if you are, if you, if you do want to make the gospel a deeper, integral part of your life, then you have to toss out stupid cliches like, well, I'm not perfect, but who is? And, well, to err is human. Those phrases don't make any sense to Christians because we know we are weak and we are broken and the inner machinery of our life is malfunctioned and messed up. We are, we are corroded with the disease called sin. We deserve God's judgment. And the only reason why we don't receive it is because God is merciful to us. Now, if we just stopped right here, we would all get depressed and should, go, and should all go out together and just get hammered together because but drown away uh, the fact that our sin is ugly and enormous and there's nothing we can do about it. But what I want you to see is that this woman in this story is not like that. She's not depressed. She's not moping in a corner. She's actually the most brave and confident person, I think, in the New Testament. Because look at her. Look at what she's doing. She, she is busted up into this dinner party, unannounced, to love and to worship uh, and, and be filled with joy, uh, to, to be just adoring Jesus publicly. And here's why. It's because she sees her sin as ugly and as enormous. But here's the last thing. She also sees it simultaneously as forgiven. And that is how she has the confidence to do that. So that, that's the third thing I want you to see. She sees it as ugly and as enormous And as forgiven, look at verse 48. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. He looks in the eyes of this woman who most people wouldn't even dare look at in general. And he looks at her and he says, I forgive you. How can Jesus just pronounce forgiveness like that? Well, let's take a step back first and ask, okay, what exactly is forgiveness? Because if you look at the actual story, it kind of looks like um, the moneylender, you know, he, he kind of wipes the debts away. And that's kind of what forgiveness is, is, you know, there's this debt, there's this infraction, and forgiveness is, is just sort of wiping the slate clean. And if you thought that, uh, you'd be wrong. It's actually something so much greater than that. That's about half the story. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When Catherine and I, Catherine is my wife, she's not here tonight, uh, but when my Catherine and I lived in Charlotte, we made the investment and we bought a house. And uh, the day that we moved in, we were you know, lugging in all of our boxes or whatever, trying to get the house all situated. Some of the neighbors came over as a single mother and her three little kids. And we had this really awesome, like wide, excuse me, front porch 
where you could just sort of chill out on. It was awesome. And so she would come over, and, we, and you know, we're sitting out there on the front porch talking, getting to know her. I mean, it was literally like we still have boxes on the inside of our house. And so it was sweet of her to come over and introduce herself. And her little kids are kind of running around, running through our legs or whatever, just playing, and we're talking and getting to know each other. And then all of a sudden we hear this crash, and we look over, and one of the kids has pushed the other kid and smashed through one of our windows, kind of right on our, on our front thing. It's like we haven't even moved in. We've like been here for like two hours, and the house is already broken. And... Uh, so he's smashed, and there's, there's like blood dripping on the thing now, and now I'm getting queasy. But um, so, so here's the question. What would forgiveness look like in this scenario? Because she was, you know, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know, she felt horrible about it. I'm like, no, 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 okay, it's, it's fine, it's fine. So forgiveness is me saying, look, no, 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 it's okay. I'm not going to make you pay for this. But I still have a broken window on my hands, right? Who's going to pay for it? I am. I am. I'm going to take the hit out of my bank account. I'm going to go to the store and pay money to buy another window. That's what forgiveness is. It is absorbing the hit, absorbing the infraction into myself and promising that I'm not going to make the other person pay for it. That's what forgiveness is. It is always, when somebody wounds you, when somebody hurts you, it's you absorbing the blow and then vowing and promising, I will not make you pay for this. So when this money lender forgives the, this person in the story the million-dollar debt, he's not like, oh, million dollars, cool, we'll just wipe that clean. What he's actually doing is he's saying, my bank account will take a million-dollar hit for you now. I will absorb the blow of this astronomical debt that you've racked up for me. Now, if you translate that into our real relationship with God, how does that work? How does God absorb our astronomical debt? Well, of course, it's on the cross. Jesus comes, and as the story of the Bible continues, he goes to the cross, and it is there where he's absorbing God's judgment that he is being cast out and is absorbing the blow. God is taking the million-dollar hit so that forgiveness to us can be free. It is absolutely free to us and absolutely, unbelievably expensive and costly to him. That's what forgiveness is, and that is what is, that's what he is offering but if you think about it, if you think about your own relationships, when you forgive somebody, I mean, you know, like when you've been wounded deeply by a friend or a family member or maybe somebody that you're dating or whatever, you know when you forgive them how much that feels like death <laughs> to actually, you know, they've wounded me and on top of that, I'm going to absorb the blow and promise, okay, I'm not going to give you the silent treatment. I'm not going to be angry at you. I'm not going to punish you for this. I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'll pay for it myself. You know how, how bad that feels and how that feels like death. Why in the world would you do that? Why? Again, there's only one reason. The only reason that you would absorb that type of hit and forgive somebody is because you love them. Forgiveness is always a tangible expression of love. And so this woman is not only receiving Jesus' forgiveness... She is receiving his love. And look at how she reacts. I mean, if you, look, if you look in the passage 44 through 47, I mean, Jesus is saying, look at how she loves me. I mean, she's pouring out uh, her tears. She's kissing them. She's pouring perfume. She is loving Jesus deeply and tangibly. And here's the whole point. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven little loves little. That is Simon. You think I've forgiven you this much, therefore you love me this much. She thinks 
she knows that I have forgiven her this much, and therefore that is why she is loving me in the way that she is. That is the whole point of the story. When you see your sin as this ugly, as this enormous, and simultaneously as forgiven, that is the key that explodes your heart with gratitude and with joy and with worship and, and adoration of Jesus. That's the way that you connect with him. That's the key. That's the gospel. I want to just draw out two implications of this before we finish, okay? First, I, I want to... Um, Talk to those of you who identify with this woman, who know how ugly and how enormous your sin really is, and how messed up and, and how you, and how messed up your life is, and how you've just blown it. For those of you who identify with this woman, I want you to hear something. Jesus has come for you. Jesus says, "I have not come for the righteous; I have come for sinners." And that is good news. Because what this means now is that when you put your trust in Jesus, this means that everything that that you've done in the past, everything that you've done right now in the present, and everything that you will do in the future is taken care of. There's nothing that you have done or will do or can do that will pull you back into condemnation. It is forever. It is secure. And it's that sort of stability and security that gives her the confidence to bust up into a dinner party knowing that when Jesus sees her, a, a you know, probably ripped clothes, poor prostitute, that he is not going to shame her. He is not going to label her. He's not going to give her stupid religious hoops to jump through. He is going to receive her with grace and with kindness, and he does. And she knows it. And that's what gives her the power and the confidence to bust up into that dinner party like that. And so the good news for you tonight is if you, are, if you know yourself like this woman and know your sin, know that you've blown it, know that the inner machinery of your life is a mess, the good news is, is that Jesus is for you. And Jesus forgives you. And that's really good news. But secondly, I want to talk to those of you who don't identify with this woman and think maybe she's just being too hard on herself. Maybe she's not in touch with how messed up her life is. Because you have to hear this too. Because Jesus looks at you and says, I've not come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. And you have to let the weight of that settle. Because if you think that you're just a general, decent, good person, and this idea of sin doesn't make any sense to you, then Jesus won't make any sense to you. And in fact, if you think of yourself as good, then Jesus really will have nothing to do with you. Because Jesus has made it a settled practice of his to only fill up those who know that they are empty. And so the invitation of this text is for you to take a look again at yourself and to be able to say, okay, My sin really is ugly and it is really enormous. But not so that you're just beating yourself up. That that is the avenue, that is the way that you are get in touch with your neediness so that you can grab a hold of Jesus because the invitation is because it will be forgiven in him. That is the invitation. But if you do not grasp that, if you do not see your sin as ugly and as enormous as it really is, then the gospel will make you angry. Maybe even the way that some of you are feeling right now for me saying that. And the Bible will make no sense to you and you'll be frustrated your entire Christian life. But the invitation is to come and to own up to the fact that you really are this messed up, but Jesus really is this big of a savior. The gospel simultaneously afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. 
But let me wrap up uh, right here, okay? Let's go back to that West Texas town. Remember where uh, there's that woman and her uh, fiancé uh, with this kid, and they're planning this wedding. And everybody's wondering in this small town, okay, what kind of wedding is she going to get? Because what kind of wedding does a sinner deserve? You know what her father did? He threw the biggest wedding that town had ever seen. So what he did first is he, he bought her this brilliantly elaborate and elegant white dress, beautiful. Then he spent thousands and thousands of dollars on the flowers to just beautify the sanctuary. And then they had one of these blowout receptions that like people are still talking about today with like the open bar and like a buffet with filet mignon and lobster on it. I mean, it was just, it was just over the top, over the top. Why in the world did he do this? Because he understood the gospel. That's how Jesus relates to us. Because what does our sin deserve? Rejection and shame? But Jesus comes in and says, I am rejected for you. I will be shamed for you so that now I can throw you the biggest wedding party in the universe. That is the beauty and that is the goodness of the gospel. You who are broken, you who are messed up, you who are filled with shame and your sin, come to Jesus because he will not cast you out, but he will receive you and he will throw the biggest wedding party in the world for you. So consider that your invitation to it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see rightly, that we would see that we are weak and needy and broken and sinful. And the good news is that, Father, you have come for people such as us. I pray, Father, that that would, that would encourage us, that would give us hope, that would give us comfort, that would give us joy, and that our hearts would explode in gratitude for this great Savior, for our great need. And we pray in His name. Amen.